0: this is michael you're listening to models of masters and i'm so grateful you're here i'm breaking down personal stories learned wisdom and pieces of insight i hope can help you along your journey head over to my website michaelbecker.org for much more and with that let's get right into the show today's episode, you're going to hear from Rick Mayo, the founder and CEO of Alloy Personal Training Franchise located in Roswell, Georgia. The Alloy family is growing quickly and has already awarded over 100 franchise locations across the U.S. As the award-winning fitness entrepreneur and founder of the Alloy franchise, Rick views building trust with his customers and growing franchise community as one of the keys to success. He also has a podcast, a YouTube channel, and writes articles online and speaks at keynote conferences around the country and i am so humbled and excited to share this amazing episode with you guys we discussed everything from how rick got started in health and fitness to how he transferred those passions and skill sets to a business and ultimately how he was able to scale Alloy by bringing a nuanced and differentiated approach to the personal training industry that included small group classes and group training in a way that differed from what everybody else was doing. So without further ado, here is the one and only Rick Mayo. Rick, where I'd like to start this conversation going off the one we were just having before we hit record is back to the very beginning. What first attracted you to fitness? Can you kind of talk about your early beginnings of your own health journey?
1: Yeah, of course. I think, you know, as you mentioned, we had a little bit of a conversation before, before we hit record. And I think, uh, you know, my beginnings were similar to yours. So, you know, as a, as a young man playing sports, um, you know, my sports were so much yours, I boxed and then I played uh, football. And so it's like, all right, you look at the athletes that do that, and you're like, man, they got all these muscles. Like, I'm like 12 or 13 years old, and we start working out. And my dad bought a weight set for our garage. You know, like I imagine my dad, he's like this tough, like man's man from Texas. You know, he had lost his leg to cancer before I was even born. So it's like, I only knew him one way, which was like this one legged guy, you know, um, tough as nails. And he's like, all right, let's get this weight set so it's the old school ones michael you probably don't remember this because you look like a pretty young man but they had like the concrete inside of them they had plastic around the outside they'd always like crack open and stuff you'd see them like in people's (laughs) basements. terrible weight sets but we bought one of those and it came with this poster and i remember we rolled the poster out and did like every single exercise on the poster and we were both so sore like i couldn't even wash my hair for like a week you know but uh, i think you know similar to your beginnings it's like all right well i like sports i need to be a better version of myself to be better at sports so let's start you know training for that so that's where it started and it sort of evolved into you know i ended up being a decent athlete but what i found is i actually enjoyed the training as much as i enjoyed you know the sport itself and i wasn't good enough to make a you know a living doing a sport so it was like well you know, I really enjoy the weight room and the environment around that. And, you know, I worked at like a powerlifting bodybuilding gym, you know, when I was in high school. It was like hardcore, no air conditioning or anything. And I worked at the front desk my entire, you know, high school career. And so like I was around these like world class powerlifters and bodybuilders and it was just a, a really cool environment, you know, and it's sort of like a subculture to be part of. And so it just kind of stuck. You know, it was a very impressionable time for me. And I loved that environment and uh, people were really cool, a little bit crazy, you know, but really cool. And so that was really it. That's how I got my start It's just just like you training for sports. And then the more I got into it, the more I liked it. And then when I sports didn't work out long term, I thought, well, you know, if I can do this Hmm. somehow um, and make a living doing it, then uh, I would love to do that. And that's sort of the birth of the entire business, to be honest.
0: When did when did the whole business aspect start to take form within your mind or when did it start to command your attention in the way that fitness had and did, did it at some point actually replace um, the time and energy that you were placing on your fitness journey I imagine that it would once you once you actually started scaling the business itself but when, when did that happen for you?
1: Yeah. So I started training people at around 20 years old and I'm (laughs) old. So that was like 33 years ago. And so so they can imagine I'm I'm training people. Right. And it's like before anybody knew what a trainer was, it's like, what what does a trainer do? It's like, well, we, Show you how to exercise and we hold you accountable. It's like, okay. You know, and people needed it then, just like they do now. And so, but I was going to people's homes and bouncing around for different health clubs so early on, Michael. It sounds crazy in the fitness industry now, but I would go into a health club and say, hey, I would like to be a personal trainer here. And they're like, I don't know what that is. Like, what, what is that? And I'm like, well, I'll, you know, I'll take some of your members. They'll pay me. I'll help them in better shape. And they didn't even want a percentage of any of the revenue. They were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just if you're, as long as you're a member here, just leave us alone. So everything was just membership driven at the time and that's not really that's how i got started and now i was in college so i'm bouncing around from home to home a couple different health clubs and you know got this idea it's like wow wouldn't it be cool if i didn't have to travel around everywhere just from an efficiency standpoint, you know, could be in one place. Plus it's kind of a high end service. And you notice that like going to people's homes, you're developing these really tight relationships, you're providing a really great service. You know, at the time I was making what like per hour, like an amazing rate. So I was actually, you know, completely self-sufficient, paying my way through school, apartment, car, like the whole thing. It was great. And I thought, you know, would it be a novel idea to put four walls around this business, you know, a customer experience, if you will, around this service of personal training. And that was it. And on a shoestring budget, we built out a small 1,500 square foot facility um, and launched, at least as far as I know, because there was no no internet, which is also really hard to believe, um, that we might have been one of the only, or certainly in the Atlanta area, the first ever personal training only facility dedicated to just that service. I mean, imagine that was well before boutique fitness was even a thing and there wasn't any studios or boot camps or anything like that. And so... Yeah, that's that's really how we got our start. So it wasn't necessarily a well-crafted idea around, hey, I've got this model and I want to scale it to you know this worldwide business, and then eventually right. we're in a franchise. It was just like, hey, man, I don't want to travel around as much. I really enjoy what I do, and it would be nice to to have like a customer experience around it where we could give towel service and have a nice, clean facility and a safe place for people to train. So that was it. That was the impetus to start the whole thing, and uh, and that was a long time ago. But I'll tell you what, man, I've never done anything else. It's been amazing. What-
0: <laughs> what what year what year was that when you started that small thing?
1: Uh, November of 1992 is the the month and year that the uh, actual facility opened. Okay. As crazy as this is, Michael, I'm still sitting in that facility right now. Isn't that nuts?
0: Has it? I mean, grown, like, has it grown and expanded in terms of the square footage?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot bigger now. So okay. yeah, we grew it. Yeah, you're like, surely it's not. It's not the exact same space, but it's literally the same space. Like the door that I walk through every morning, I've been walking through for 31 years, which is nuts, right? But uh, yeah, it's much different now. It's a corporate office now as opposed to like a full-on gym, and it's certainly the area around has changed and everything. But yeah, it's, um, it's been an awesome journey
0: and of course since that time over the last 30 years we've seen this explosion in the fitness and well-being space i mean i don't know the exact numbers but i would presume we're talking about a you know multi-billion dollar industry and fitness is such an entry point i think with the with the evolution of the internet man like you know we we've seen you know personal trainers and nutritionists and and so many other people who can help people o- along that fitness journey take their skill set online and and starts you know selling that through social media and the internet and, and so forth. And I mean, there's so many you know quote unquote influencer stories that you see and, and read about today of people that got their start just doing that same exact thing you know from a passion for for fitness themselves, bodybuilding or, or training or competing, and maybe taking that to their their first small location or not even and just building their business online Um, back in those early days. And then I guess through the early 2000s, like, was there any franchise or fitness entrepreneur that you looked up to or that you learned from when you were getting started?
1: Yeah, I can't think of anyone specifically. I mean, there were certainly um, people in, in our industry now. Again, no one was really doing what I was doing, so it was hard to find like a direct um, mentor that was like, Hey, have you opened a personal training facility like this? It was usually a lot of the guys in the industry at that time, they owned like a big health club, right? So your typical, like I'll just throw a name out there, like a Gold's Gym or a 24 hour, one of those kind of brands that might be familiar with folks, LA Fitness, even Lifetime, but that's more of a family place, but a place that just, you know, you had equipment and you, you might have personal training going on inside of there. But I think, and you probably certainly realize this through just doing the podcast. It's like, there's something to learn from everyone. So one thing I think that I did well at that time was I would certainly engage with, um, anyone who would, you know, answer some questions, right. And ask about just business concepts, whether it was, you know, tax strategies or just anything around the fitness space while also running a model that really, quite honestly, hadn't been done before until that point. So. You know i mean there was some fitness education companies that were out there that but again they were teaching more of the mechanisms of general membership you know big giant family based clubs but you could i could learn some things from them as well customer experience sales right all those same frameworks work in a smaller business so we would just as you know you, you take what you can right from those things that work discard the things that don't and you keep moving there's always something to be learned so most of my influences weren't in my exact business model but still very very helpful but there's some really sharp people in the fitness space whether it was Golds Jam or you know any of these guys and you know what that ended up leading to is once we got out and started doing more education you know then we landed on a really interesting model where we scaled personal training from one- on-one into this what we call small group or personal training in a small group which was really up to six people with one coach now once we did that it was like man it was less expensive for the consumer it was more scalable. The club can make more money. The coaches can make more money. The the clients paid less. I'm like, this is a win-win all the way around. And that was our new model. And so that's the way we were servicing training in like right around the year 2000. And so that put us in a situation where we were like the highest revenue per square foot facility in the country. So then that put me on the speaking circuit. So some of the same events that I would go to now I'm speaking, and now I'm speaking about a whole new business model that no one's really done, which is like, I have a studio that just does personal training and people are like, well, that's weird. Um, but it was interesting, you know, from a lot of folks, cause they hadn't done it yet. And when they looked at our revenue based on the small square footage, you know, the square footage that we had, it was like, again, highest revenue per square foot in the country. So that put me on the map. And thankfully I had um, taken a few courses and just learned how to you know, put a sentence together so I could get in front of people and articulate ideas. And then, you know, once we started doing that, people would start asking, like, can you help me build a sales system for my business? Or can you help me, yeah. you know, design workouts for clients? It's like all the pieces, you know, part and parcel. Of the program of what we did, you know, people wanted to buy it, and we started selling it as consulting days and you know, consulting sort of projects. And then eventually, I was just like, "Look, man, we're answering the same questions over and over again. Um, let's put this thing on an online platform." And we launched at the time what we called licensing, and that was sort of a white label version of what we do. Whether you were CrossFit gym or a big giant family tennis center. And it was like, all right, we'll approach each project as a consulting project, and then we'll deploy parts of our platform to you to power whatever it is that we think you need. And we would do pricing and comp structures and all these things around the business model. And we did that to the tune of 2,500 clubs everywhere from India to Tasmania and everything in between. So here we went from this tiny little thing we started in college, and all of a sudden we're like all over the world. We've got people with alloy tattoos, you know, on their body. I mean, just nuts. And so, so much fun. And then in 2019, it was like, look, we. We were being now approached by like what we would consider direct competitors, like boutique fitness saying, can we, can you build our sales system? Can you write our workouts? And I was like, eh, you know, instead of doing it for them, if they're just like us, we should just make a run out on our own. And that's after sitting on the advisory board for like an Anytime Fitness, which has 5,000 locations with Gold's gym. So I had already gotten a nice peek under the covers of franchising. Yep. And we were like, look, man, like, we should make a run at our own franchise. And again, that was in the very end of 2019. We launched a full on franchise, which is different than the white label thing that we were doing. So we've been through a lot of iterations. I got to tell you, it was like one facility to multiple facilities to, you know, consulting to licensing and then eventually to franchising over, you know, a long period of time, over 31 years. But yeah, every step has been challenging and amazing at the same time.
0: So I want to I want to dig into a couple of those transition points with, that you just described and that was that was a great overview of of the the growth that the business is seen. um at what point did you start to have the foresight to, to where you said this is more than just a single location where we're going to do personal training and bring in a core group of people from the local area how how did the idea to scale um start to take shape and, and how did you how did you act on that when it did
1: well i would love to say that it was part of the grand plan but quite honestly it took people like beating me over the head with it you know and i'm not embarrassed to say that because i think it's also important to have a culture where you can stay focused on one thing while keeping your eyes open to opportunities right so i would have never thought to like hey we're gonna we're gonna start this brick and mortar we're gonna land on this amazing model and then once we do i'm gonna take it out to the world it was literally someone local in my market you know a gold's gym and we were introduced by a couple of friends because i was now speaking in the industry and he just wanted he's just a great guy he was an older man almost 80 years old at the time had been in the marine corps just a squared away guy but he was always looking for what's next that slight edge in his market and he owned three gold gems you know in the atlanta area okay. so he said hey i want to come visit you it was a saturday morning so he came out and we were slammed you know and it's like we got all these groups of people working out with trainers and you know he's like this is amazing i've never seen anything like this and i'm like yeah the average person in here is paying like 350 a month he was just like wow you know because that's that's a lot of money when you're comparing that to maybe a 40 a month you know gym membership. and So I'm like, yeah, everybody's getting coaching. It's just that different, you know, like look a little different than what you're used to. And it really took him saying, can you take this and help us do this like in our gym? Um, And I was like, well, maybe, you know, let me, let me think about it. And sure enough, it was like, sure, we can do that. You know? And again, that was after doing a lot of consulting, but it was different to say, like, can you literally just stick this in my club? and not necessarily run it for them, but teach them to fish, right? Can you build something that we can run as a default for our personal training program? And so that was, I mean, I literally someone had to ask me for it before I even had the idea. So I'd love to say I came up with this great idea, but that wasn't it at all. And so that was it. That was the impetus to say, sure, we can do that. It was just on the front edge of being able to offer something digitally. This is probably 16 years ago or so. So like learning management systems were like brand new, and we put everything onto a learning management system so we could deploy it better. And then that was it. Then we were off and running, but it was not a grand master plan at all. I would love to say it was, but it was not.
0: And you mentioned that, that back in the day that there were some gold gyms and a couple other places in, in the area, you were able to charge about an eight X, 8X- 8x multiple on what other you know local or franchise or chain locations might have been asking their customers say 30 40 maybe 50 dollars a month. What allowed you to go into market with that premium on pricing in terms of your differentiation? Like, walk me through the specifics of what that customer experience actually, actually felt like for the for the people that were joining.
1: Yeah, I think when you zoom out a little bit, when you look at what. Okay, so personal training at that point in time was a thing at this point, right? Like we had grown up with the industry. Now people understood what a trainer was. But if you think about it, Michael, you would say, join a gym. So as I say, it's like, you know, Michael's gym. So join Michael's gym. I'm paying 40 bucks a month. And then I'm in there working out. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, maybe I got a machine orientation or something to kind of use them, but I'm not motivated. You know, I need an appointment with someone. The whole same same story, right? So what am I going to do? Well, then I'm going to hire a trainer. And so that already was happening in mass. So most of our competition were trainers inside of big box gyms. But now I have to buy a membership. So that i can even get to a trainer that i can hire right and typically all the training was done in a one-on-one setting so it's more expensive so let's just say for again at that time maybe 50 bucks an hour so you know you could come to us not have to buy a membership Get your training and pay $25 for a session, right? As opposed to 50. So it's half the cost and you were sharing a little bit of time with a group of people, but each program was still personalized. So it's like, it's still personal training. There's a little bit of community there, which is awesome. Right? So you get a little bit of what you might get from a class, even though that's a dirty word, the C word for us. It's like, no, it's training but you still get a little bit of that sociability, but you don't have to buy a membership and wander around in a big giant gym, which most of our customers don't want anyway. They're like, it's a destination place. You wanna drive up, go in, get your workout, get the heck out of there, right? You wanna mess with all the rigmarole of all the other members and the giant locker rooms and just not their scene. And so we weren't really creating something new at that point. We were just creating something better. Like if you needed a personal trainer specifically, you could hire one in a facility one-on-one but it would predicate it'd be predicated on joining that facility first or you could come directly to us and that's what we do and i will say having that brand promise on the door even perceptually we were better at it than someone who might work part-time at a gold gym as a trainer i mean this is all that we do right and i'll tell you what the evidence of that was that i think at one point and still holds true 80 something percent of our clients that were paying a membership for training in our club were also members of other fitness concepts typically a regular health club Mm -hmm. so they were buying that membership now you would think okay well that's a financial barrier right like if they buy that membership why would not they do their training there because they saw us as an expert in this one vertical and so they might go to the to the regular gym to walk on the treadmill or what have you but they would come to us for their personal training because that's where we were the experts and we were better at it than most of the individual trainers
0: right right that makes sense okay Uh, Take me back to the beginning and let's talk numbers for a moment. So how much did you put in to launch the business? Uh, Talk about your customer growth in those initial years, like how how many people were were actually coming and signing up and then at what point were you profitable and what kind of revenue were you seeing?
1: Yeah. So I think all in, I remember taking out a loan for $36,000, which is laughable now. I had a local guy like craft some equipment it's literally like welded it up in his garage. I knew him and he made good stuff. It was just homemade stuff. Um, oh nice. And yeah, just crazy. So, we opened on a shoestring budget. We didn't do any marketing. My initial, you know, way to fill up business was I just took all the clients that I was working with and had them come to me. So there was an instant instant full schedule for myself. Um, and then I just grabbed friends in the industry that I knew from these different health clubs and brought them in and they brought their clients with them. And that's kind of the way we started. So there wasn't a lot of ramp on you know, marketing to get up to speed. But once we were in market, like we we're the only thing around and no one did what we did. So a lot of people would call our entire business. I mean, unless you were in the yellow pages, which is laughable now, um, you know, we didn't have any real advertising. We had some flyers, we did a couple of mailers and we just got a, mostly referrals. So if, you, if your thing is good enough, people will find you, you know, people will talk and people will find you. So we built a business up through referrals. Now at the time that we switched to the other format that I mentioned, right, where we went from like training people from one-on-one to training them in these small groups. That was around year 2000. So you can imagine we've been in business seven years. At that point we were doing 3,000 one-on-one sessions a month. So, you know, again, well over a million bucks a year in revenue out of a very small space. Um, I would say the margins on that were not nearly as good as they are in the current model or in the model that we landed on, which was putting people into small groups. So you get excited about that top end revenue, but like the profit margins on that were pretty low. because you, again, I just, I didn't do a great job of the way I set up my comp structures and everything else. We had remedied that by 2000, but, um, you know, I, I throw that number out there now and people get really excited. It's like, wow, many bucks is good revenue, right? For a small, small footprint business. It is, but the margins on it weren't great in that one-on-one setting. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, 3,000 one-on-one sessions a month. It's like, I think we've done this several iterations, Michael, where we'll abandon what is a seemingly a very successful business you know, the opportunity cost of going to like maybe a better business. So imagine taking a business that's doing 3,000, one-on-one sessions a month. It's not broken in any way, shape or fashion and saying, you know what, we're going to move to this new model. And we did it because, you know, it's a little bit of like what Henry Ford said about if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? They didn't know they wanted a car. They did didn't even know what the concept of a car was. I felt the same way in our business. So you just have to have a little bit of trust and a little bit of foresight to say, okay, we have people coming to our gym that are saying, can I bring a friend? And we say, of course, we can train two people at one time. That's not difficult. And then they pay a little less. The hour is more valuable. I'm now helping more people because I've got more bandwidth, right? And my coaches make more. So the gym makes more, the coaches make more. As I mentioned before, clients pay less like this is a good thing. And then they're like, well, can we bring another friend that's on our tennis team as an example? I'm like, sure. So now there's a third person in the hour. They're having more fun. They're paying a little bit less. I'm still making more. Coach is making more. So I thought, well, this is the way we should do it. And so just seeing this empirical evidence we're like, all right, rip the bandaid off. We're moving our whole model from one on one training to up to six people with one coach, which was not an easy thing to do. Same thing when we went from licensing to franchising, a booming business, it's like, Oh, we're gonna pivot and go here. So those things aren't taken lightly. But I think, um, you know, along the way, maybe that's a good lesson for people listening. Like sometimes, sometimes you have to do it, right? Sometimes you have to give up the good for the great, if that makes sense.
0: So talk about that transition from um, to, to licensing and to franchising and what that entailed. And then kind of what you learned about scaling a business and team building and and management, um, in both instances.
1: Yeah. I think what I learned mostly was if, if you want something to scale it has to be dead simple, I mean, like our franchise now, very simple, 130 members, right. Our average spend is around 300 bucks a month. Um, it's just a dead simple model, but you know, we've sold 115 thus far. Well, if fifty open by the year's end, most of that growth has come, you know, in the last eighteen months or so. So you put that many in market, it I don't care how simple it is, the scale alone is gonna make it complex. So I think that's one thing we learned for sure, is like things have to be dead simple. You know, I also learned that like along that journey Um, anybody that's listening that's an entrepreneur and we spend a lot of time like I I teach entrepreneur classes by the way at a local college so I'm in the perfect business for me I love fitness and I love entrepreneurship and a franchise allows me to give people both right I can help people become entrepreneurs and I can help them put fitness into their local market so super happy as a side note, love it love what I'm doing but um, you know as an entrepreneur it's often described as like a self-help journey disguised as a business and that's what it is so I would say like one thing that I learned personally was for me to move up right to level up it's like, you have to stack skills until you've earned the opportunity to be in a better opportunity vehicle. So like, I can't have 2,500 licensed clubs and be the same leader and thought, you know, have the same thought process and the same style of hiring and scaling, and communicating that I did when I had one gym and I was in there working every day. Yeah, I have to be a different person, not core values, not, you know, like, Not that I just, you just have to think and make decisions and and the very things that made you successful when you were in your gym every day might be diametrically opposed to what will make you successful to scale a bigger business, right? Same thing going to franchising, Michael. It's like, all right, what I did in licensing to grow that I cannot do that to grow this franchise. So I've got to upskill myself because now I'm even in a better opportunity vehicle. So it's like each step along the way, and that's life, by the way, right? Upskill, better opportunity vehicle. And that's going to keep going when you hit these milestones, you move that goalpost, and you upskill yourself again, and um, you know hopefully that will create a better opportunity vehicle. And what comes with that is a lot of discomfort. Imposter syndrome never goes away; it's always there because you're always at the hairy edge of your skill set, right, pushing for the next thing. Um, and so I think that was something that I learned personally. Um, and also just learning through scale that like that you think things are simple until they're not became our fifth core value, which is keep it simple, kiss. and it has to be dead, simple to scale. So thats the two biggest things. it's like the business is only going to go as far as the leader can evolve. and also it better be just dead,
0: simple to scale. The thing that i'm I'm presently wrestling with around that is patience because, I think we we want we want to be able and we want to believe that we can upskill ourselves within a matter of days and weeks. And while you can do a lot of work in that time, you know, realistically, for any large large change to, to take place within, it's going to take months, if not years, and probably you know a, a decade. You know, for, for for real for real transformation to to really change who you are as a person is is going to take a long time. So that's something that I'm I'm working through right now personally. But um, well, listen, man, keep going. I think.
1: Like hearing you say that, like, I can tell you already that you're, you're wired the right way. Like when, yeah, i got a good friend that always says like, you can tell how smart someone is or how successful they'll be based on the time frame they talk about. Like if exactly. you want to get rich quick in a year, like it might happen. Good on you. But if you're like, hey, man, you're a young man, right? I'm not. I'm 53. So I'm figuring shit out now that I had no idea about you know, seven years ago. It's like yeah. you've got a long way to go. And I'm not saying that that you can have urgency, right? And still be in the infinite game. Like you want to use Simon Sinek thing. It's like you right. can play the infinite game and there's still finite scores that need to be met along the way. There's things that need to be done, right? But if the goal is just to keep growing and stay in the game, then you've got this long time horizon and the longer your time horizon, the more you're going to accomplish, right? So I think you can have both urgency and patience kind of baked into the same person or journey, if that makes sense, but look, man, the best advice I've heard, the best way I've heard it described is like aim as high as you possibly can conceive, I mean, yeah. way above and beyond what you could think is imaginable. Right. And then move in that direction with, you know, bring everything to bear that you have to move in that direction. And even if that changes over time or you don't get to whatever that perceived place was. You're going to be infinitely better off if you do that and you move in that direction, right? What could happen? It's like, it's good. You're going to be better off no matter what. And I think that's, that's life, you know, summed up in a journey. And, and again, if entrepreneurship is, you know, a self-help journey disguised as a business, it's that it's like, you're going to go as far as you can take it. And that really has a lot to do with where you are mentally and are you of that mindset and can you stay in that mindset for a long period of time? And if you can do, just the sky's the limit.
0: So can you talk a little bit about mindset and then also going back to those transition points of moving to licensing and then to franchising? What were one or two of the the skill sets that emerged for you or that you realized that you needed to master in order to be successful during those during those points in the business?
1: Yeah, and I think think delegating, you know, I think when you're in a small business, you're kind of all things. So you're, you're the smartest person in your business when you have eight employees in one location. That's okay. Yeah. You know, you're, you're the marketing guy, you're the you're this guy, or that guy. Well, then you go to licensing. It's like okay, well, you can't do everything. So it's like now I have to have a salesperson, and they have to be better at sales than I am, right? Hopefully, if they're not, then you know we have a problem. And so yeah. now you have a finance person. It's like all right, well, if I know if I can run spreadsheets better than my CFO, then we're in trouble, right? So it's like. What you learn is to delegate, but in a way that it's also a little bit of a death of your ego. Like I often joke, like the thing I'm most proud of in the franchise is I'm like the dumbest guy. I'm like, D-, <laughs> right? I say that as a joke. My only function is like try to hold the culture together and hire the right people and make sure that we're all you know rowing in the same direction. It's like, but it's not my job to be the best at. At finding real estate for franchisees, or you know, negotiating leases, or the construction phase, or the pre-sale, or the franchise coaching, or all the things that go into having a successful brick-and-mortar business—I've got people in all of those seats that, are, that can just run circles around me in their functions, and that makes me a good leader, right? But if you don't know that, to your point, you know, how do you, you know what are those inflection points? Um, it's a little bit of of death of your ego, right? You have to just be willing to hire people a lot smarter than you are. And as you do that, you have these aha moments along the way. I would say that's been the biggest, you know, lesson for me. It's just like, all right, learn to delegate. You can have a little bit of knowledge of what's going on in the business. That's key. I think obviously I've been in it forever, but at the same time, I've got a lot of smart people around me and that's what's going to make or break me my ability to attract, lead and keep really good people on the team.
0: Got it. Talk a a little bit about the process that a new franchisee would go through when joining the Alloy umbrella and what type of things do you guys look for in people that you bring on to serve as an extension of the business as a franchisor? I love that question. That is a million dollar question because,
1: you know, for us, we always say no stinkers, right? And what we mean by that is we're trying to expand this brand and we want to do it with integrity. And the only way to do that is to pick great franchise partners. You know, at the end of the day, we're taking a a piece of the top line revenue. It's called a royalty. We take a percentage of top line revenue. We have to have the right partners because at the end of the day, you're right. Now there's a third party involved. There's someone else between us and the end user and the customer. And so it has to be the right partner. So I think for us, we're looking for leaders. That's it. And they're Look, there's, there's different ways there's quiet leaders, there's outgoing leaders. There's people that are really good at certain functions of the business that can lead that way. We always use this one lens. I heard it on a podcast once as it related to dating and it, it was uh, a young woman was talking to her mother and she said, Oh honey, I want a guy who is successful. And she's you know, she's telling her mom, mom, I want a guy who's successful. He's this, he's this. And she just lays out this perfect profile of essentially just a straight up winner and that's the kind of person i'm looking for and i'm not sure what was going on in her life but her mom looks at her in the most heartbreaking way and says oh honey you're not the person that you're looking for is looking for it's like oof. So we use that often when we're looking for candidates because their ability, Michael, to attract, lead, and keep really good talent, that's the crux of the whole thing. Like, we're not gonna let you put it in the wrong place. We have seven layers of real estate criteria, right? They're gonna make you put it in the right place. We're not gonna let you pay too much in rent. I mean, all those things are like, that's math at the end of the day, right? Good, put it in the right place. Second though, can you attract can you lead the right people so when we're vetting candidates and remember franchising is awesome because they're vetting us we're vetting them just it's hard because at the end of the day we've got a partnership to get into right for at least 10 years so i'm looking for people who can attract and lead really good people because most of our franchisees are investors they're not going to stand in their club and service revenue they're going to have to attract really good operators right and coaches that are going to work there as well now it's a low labor model it's only three or four people in each club but they still have to get out there and hire them and attract them. So what I'm looking at from them is like, again, are they the person that they're looking for, is looking for, does that make sense? It does.
0: Yeah. What about startup costs or some of the specifics that your franchisees need to be prepared to bring to the table or the investors who are buying the business and then hiring a team themselves, what should they be thinking about?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, in the franchise agreements there's something called an item seven, which is the expense claims, and these are audited each year. And that's the great thing about franchising. It's like all your stuff's out there. Like you can't you know, fudge any numbers, everything's audited. So right now, our startup cost is sit somewhere between like 200 and 4 plus, right in that category. Now we're hitting right in the middle of that right now, so kind of averaging around 300-ish to get one open. That's before you would get what's called TI, which is like if you negotiated in your lease for your landlord to give you some money back, you know, after you open, um, that can be anywhere from 25 to 50 grand or whatever that might be. So, like we just say, oh, like, keep it safe, like around 300k is kind of what we're hitting right now. Um, now again, we haven't, we haven't opened in Manhattan or LA or whatever. And we understand that's going to be more expensive, but there's pricing tiers to offset that. Okay. Um, but that's what we're looking at there. So that's what the owner should expect. Now what's in that number, literally everything like the franchise fee, right? And that's what you pay first to get started. And then and it's going to cover everything else, including three months of operating costs and a really hefty pre-sale spin. Cause that's what we're really good at. It's getting your gym full before you open. So it's like, all right. That's going to cover all of that plus three months of operating expenses. So that's all in, that's not just like what what the equipment cost or what it costs to build it out. That's every single expense. It's going to take you from soup to nuts to get the place open. Got it. And not bad. You know, again, we have all types of different franchisees, some are very successful in other sectors. So they're self funding You know, you can do a 401k rollover, it's called ROBS and basically you can take your 401k and move it into a different entity and that can fund sort of like it's seen as an investment. So there's no penalty for doing that. That's a creative way to do it. or you can do a traditional SBA loan. a lot of people do that as well. So there's all kinds of different ways to fund these. And we've had people do, you know, partial cash, partial SBA. there's like, you can make, you can do Rob's and SBA. You can do all these different things. You can do a home equity line of credit the acronyms HELOC. So you can do a HELOC. You can do all these different things, you know, to put the financing together. But um, at the end of the day, you're gonna end up in around that same number. More more in like super expensive markets once we start getting into those and building those out. But um, yeah, I mean, that's it at the end of the day. And we can't make a lot of claims, Michael. That's one thing that's interesting about franchising is like when I was consulting, I'm like, you do these three things, you're going to make this much money. I can't really say that anymore because an earnings claim can get you in big trouble. But I will say that compared to other fitness concepts, it's a relatively low barrier entry. And it can be, and I'm saying can be, right? It can be very lucrative as far as percentage of revenue as profit. So if you say compared to, I'm trying to think of another boutique fitness concept that everyone's heard of, how about orange theory, right? You're probably in at 750 to 800 to open. And if you look at, I think what their profit claims are, you know, like 25 plus percent of that can be profit. That's pretty good money. But if you could do a lot more than that in a much less, you know, expensive investment, you could do multiple alloys, you know, for that, obviously. Um, and I think you could do much better from a profit standpoint for the same type of investment. So it's a it's a good offering in the fitness space. Look, we target an underserved avatar because of the price threshold, it pushes us a bit older. So we we really target when we're doing our demographics for real estate 45 to 65 with money. And that's not really targeted in fitness. If you look at most fitness ads, it's like 30 year old hot moms, right? Right. Like running on a truck mean, and that's fine, except there's eight hundred other fitness concepts in those markets targeting those same people. Mm. If we only need 130 and we're targeting a underserved Fitness market, which we are, it's not too difficult to go into the most crowded fitness markets and gobble up 130 people who are probably misplaced in a brand that they don't love. You know, maybe they're beat up. Like, we're the only brand that can really work around injuries. If you're a 55 year old guy that's an A player and owns a company, but you played college football and you had to have your knee replaced, you're not going to be able to go run on the treadmill in an Orange Theory, right? And so you're like, all right, I need something more specific to me. Really, other than one on one training, which is really expensive these days, like, we're the only brand that can accommodate that person. So that ends up being our avatar. And it just so happens. they're underserved they have a lot of money and they stick around forever so one of our big claims is our retention rate it's one of our differentiators so you know our average stay is like three years in our brand whereas other brand is five months so it's like all right you go pay 150 bucks a month and stay five months that's a class-based concept are you gonna spend 300 bucks a month plus and stay three years it's like which customer do you want I mean it's a rhetorical question but that that's um that's it in a nutshell like when You got to start with that, right? Does the franchise make money? Can the franchise get a good return on investment? Once you can answer that question, then it becomes about what do you want the day in the life to look like? Do you want purpose around what you do and all the other things that are super cool about the business space?
0: I would imagine that you guys have identified a couple of keys around that continuity model and retention specifically. Like, Are there any characteristics that you found that keep people coming back month after month or even on a years long basis like is it important that they bring x number of friends in the business or that they show up for training x number of times per month have you guys dug that deep
1: we have so we've got all kinds of i mean the good thing about being in business forever is we have a lot of data right so the the break point seems to be eight times a month so if somebody's coming in consistently eight times a month or more they're usually getting pretty good results. And mind you, one, one thing that also makes us a little bit different is we've got all these ways to measure results. Whereas if you go to a, say like an F45, and I'm not throwing shade at them, there's just a whole class of people that fit into that category. It's like come try free class, right? And you don't really know if you're anything's changing. Like are you getting stronger? Are you moving better? You know, what's going on inside of your body? We've got all these really cool scientific ways to measure what's happening and so we're able to measure those over time so there's ascension like people can see their progress that stickier but quite honestly what drives the the retention model you know to that point was it's only 130 now that's not the limit you can push up to maybe 150 but just think 130 makes a healthy model there's a there's an interesting uh british scientist his name's robin dunbar and he studied all kinds of ancient civilizations up to modern and basically what he's determined is you know how many people can you have a, a a cognitive relationship with, meaning you know them pretty well, outside of like your family and your very close friends. And it's, it turns out it's 150 people. So it's sometimes called the rule of 150. It's called Dunbar's number, but it basically, it really speaks to the model. So a lot of people ask us that question, Michael's like, why is the retention so good? Are you choosing a certain avatar? Like what makes it so sticky? And it's like, well, in a lot of ways, if you want to peel it back and keep it simple, the model itself you only have 150 people. That means I'm going to know your name. I'm going to know your spouse's name. I know your kids' names. You're going to meet. You're going to my spouse, my kids. I mean, it's like it's it's much easier to put your arms around a small flock of people like that, right? And take care of them when you have personal relationships with everyone. If you're if you're a boot camp model and you need 700 members and you're churning out 40 a month, right, or so or more, it's like all right, there's just no possible way you're going to have that level of connection. Then it just becomes about the workout. It's like, eh, I mean, you can get a great workout anywhere. anywhere but can you build that, that community? Right. Hmm. That make sense?
0: Yeah. 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 That's, that's awesome. Um, well, this has been a great conversation, Rick. And as we approach the the end of of this talk, um, is there any any topics that I did not ask you about that you want to discuss or any points that you feel uh, we didn't get a chance to to touch on to bring forward?
1: Well, I would say you didn't ask me about my stents, training Usher and Madonna and all those famous people. But, you know, gentlemen gentleman <laughs> never kisses and tells, so it's probably best left alone anyway.
0: <laughs> right. That's where
1: the business started. And then we evolved into helping regular folks like me. But yeah, that's um, we have some really fun stories. Sometimes if, if we meet in person, we'll have some fun conversations over a couple of beers about stuff like that.
0: Or maybe, maybe, maybe work out
1: or. Yeah, maybe we'll work <laughs> out. We'll eat some chicken. I know you're not drinking anymore. Good for you. Um, you know, we'll go at it that way. We'll be healthy about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, where can people go to learn more about uh, what you guys do and to, to find you?
1: Just alloyfranchise.com is the, is the easiest place. And if you have any questions about this or anything else, just shoot me a message there. Even if it's not directly about franchising, I'll help you in any way that I can. Like I said, I teach entrepreneurship. super passionate about it. So reach out if, if I can help you. And I'm all over social media. So you can find me there as well.
0: Awesome. This has been a, a great conversation. Thank you, brother.
1: Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it, bud.
0: That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review as everything helps. I'm working to spread these insights to as many people as I possibly can. You can connect with me on Instagram at workwithmichael. Feel free to shoot me a message or check out my link tree for more resources. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. My book, Content Capitalist, is on sale now. Grab your copy by visiting my website or tapping the link in the episode description. I also just released the online learning portal, which expands on what I share in the book. This includes four hours of edited, captioned video tutorials and trainings, plus dozens of downloadables and templates. Between the book and the e-academy, you're gonna be equipped to literally blow your revenue targets out of the water and eviscerate your competition this year, all by putting content at the core. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, comment, and share all the things. And hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect. I am here to serve you. And that's it. I will see you in the next episode.